Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Coming up this hour, the art of dining alone. We all have different thoughts and opinions on dining alone. Some people relish the experience. Others would rather eat a bowl of bees than feel vulnerable at a table for one. Perhaps thinking to themselves, are people judging me? This hour, producer Catrice Claudio reflects on solo dining and how it can actually be a way to connect with yourself and others. Later in the show, Catrice talks with local bartender Anna Konya about her experiences observing and interacting with lots of solo diners grabbing a meal at the bar. Plus, the photographer behind the book, Dining Alone, in the Company of Solitude. Aside from its portraits of solo diners, the book is an interesting visual history of restaurants spanning more than 35 years. But first, Catrice Claudio talks with writer Alyssa Wilkinson. She's a movie critic for The New York Times and the author of the book, Salty, Lessons on Eating, Drinking, and Living from Revolutionary Women. A year ago, Alyssa wrote an article for Vox called The Glories of Dining Out Alone. Alyssa explains some of the history of dining alone, the stigma some people may still feel, and takeaways for solo diners, so you might feel a little more confident if taking yourself out to dinner is part of your self-care. Alyssa, welcome to Seasoned. I'm so excited to be talking with you because you are quite literally the only person that I've spoken to beyond our production team that truly vibes with the joy of dining alone. And so having this conversation is going to be so refreshing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining me. So you wrote a piece called The Glories of Dining Out Alone. And in that piece, you talked about the generational divide between women and your family when it came to dining alone. You say Mm -hmm. life without eating alone is unimaginable. Mm -hmm. What do you get out of dining alone that your elders didn't or couldn't? Yeah, you know, it was funny because a lot of this article sprung out of a conversation that I'd had at a family birthday dinner with members of my family who live north of the city a couple hours. And so... You know, I've spent most of my adult life in New York, where I feel like eating alone is pretty normal. (laughs) You know, it's just sort of a fact of life. You're going from one place to another. You need to eat some food, so you're going to sit down and eat it. And it's very different from their lives. And in the course of this conversation, I realized that for someone like my grandmother, who's, you know, in her 80s, or my aunts or my mother, who are around 60s, There's a kind of a stigma almost for them. They feel like when they go into a restaurant to eat alone, they're being looked at or observed or pitied or something like that. And that was something I kind of knew but hadn't realized fully how ingrained it was. And several of my family members have worked as servers at restaurants at different periods of time. And my aunt said, oh, I I used to look at people who were (laughs) eating alone and feel sorry for them because I thought maybe they're lonely and I felt compassion for them. And and then she kind of winked and said, unless they had a book with them. <laughs> and I laughed because, of course, I always bring a book with me wherever I'm going. And so I often am reading one at the table. But it was a different thing from what I experienced, which is a kind of uh, almost like a rest and a time to be with myself and watch people and contemplate things and really enjoy the meal. And so the distinction there was really clear and a little surprising, but interesting to me. So I noticed you you talk about your grandmothers, your aunts, these women in your family that were directly Mm -hmm. expressing this grievance around dining alone. And in your article, you talk about how women were often discouraged from dining out on their own. How have women been discouraged from enjoying this event called solo dining? It's really interesting to dive into the history of this because, as with everything, it's a little more complex than I think we might 
assume. So, you know, there was a period of time in the 19th century when people who went to restaurants for whatever reason, you might not even call it a restaurant, might be more like a boarding house, dining room or something like that. They ate at communal tables. So eating alone wasn't really a thing. It was like everyone was seated at the same table. And then after the Civil War, there was kind of the birth of like the fine dining or luxury restaurant, which is where you would go to have essentially a semi-private meal, probably with someone else, maybe for a business reason or because you're there with someone who you were married to or courting or whatever. And if there was a woman who was alone in that restaurant, it was assumed that she was kind of looking for business, so to speak, right? That she was she was looking to be picked up. And it's funny, they would refer to those women as lone women, but you were actually considered a lone woman even if you were there with other women. So if women were unaccompanied by men, they were lone women, and the restaurants didn't want to serve them either because that made you kind of a house of ill repute. (laughs) So this is a long time ago, and it's funny to sort of read about moments where women challenged those assumptions. There was a time in 1868, Delmonico's, which is this downtown sort of fancy steak restaurant in New York, it still exists, became the first restaurant, at least on record, to serve a group of women who weren't accompanied by men. And it was this event that this women's social club, which was you know, sort of this feminist group that was trying to counter social norms. They put together this event with Delmonico's and it was like a big deal. But even then it had to be arranged by somebody's husband. And then we move into a period kind of during the wars and immediately after when single women living in cities doing jobs that had previously been mostly restricted to men were becoming more common and you had to eat somewhere. And so you might end up with a situation where your boarding house has a restaurant or coffee shop that you would eat at or a luncheonette that has a counter, which makes it a little easier to eat alone. But even into the 1960s, there were restaurants that would not admit women or admit women who were alone and not accompanied by a man. So in 1969, this kind of funny but also courageous and really important thing happened. So at that time in the 69, it was not really technically legal to refuse to serve a woman in a restaurant, but there were restaurants that essentially still kind of followed those old rules. And one of them was the Oak Room at the Plaza, which is a very old, fancy cool place to go. You can still go to it if you're in New York. And Betty Friedan and 15 other women basically went charging in at the lunch hour with signs. <laughs> and the signs said things like, wake up plaza, get with it now. And the oak room is outside the law. And this was part of a broader movement at the moment to bring women's rights more broadly into the kind of civil rights activity that was happening at the time. And four months after the protest, which was widely covered in the papers, which of course was the idea, um, the Oak Room decided that they would admit women after all. So there's a kind of a long history here. And a lot of, I think, the stigma that still exists right now around women who feel like maybe they shouldn't eat alone, even if there's no stigma at all, I think, necessarily at this point. It's sort of self-perpetuating, and it comes from a lot of this historical background. And yet still today, even though we're a little far removed from that era, we seem to have this apprehension about dining alone and being at a table and enjoying our own company. What do you think is possibly informing the stigma today? One piece is that, you know, again, we feel like we're being viewed And I think a lot of us have inherited that same idea from older generations about, you know, you don't go do things by yourself because it shows that you're like a loser. (laughs) You You should be on a date. You should be with a friend. And I should say, you know, my day job, I'm a movie critic. And the same stigma often exists for people around going to see movies alone, which is wild to me because it's the most fun way to see a movie. But, you know, people think of it the same way. And it's this idea that I will be seen as a lonely person and people will judge me. So I think that is a piece of it. And I understand that. At the same time, for me, I don't really care all that much what other people are thinking about me when I'm sitting there. But I think there is the sense, too, that if I get used to eating alone, like, will I ever eat with other people again? Or or maybe I'm just afraid of striking up a conversation 
with the people around me because I don't want them to get the wrong idea. I mean, a thing that is a real factor, particularly for women, although not only for women, is, you know, not wanting to be approached by men, for instance, if you don't want that attention. And so, you know, if you go to a bar, you bring a book because that's supposed to signal unavailability. Although for me, <laughs> I find that often people are like, oh, what are you reading? <laughs> and they want to talk about it. So a lot of people end up looking at their phones because that really is kind of the ultimate putting a glass bubble around yourself. But that fear of being approached without wanting to be approached, even if it's a kind and you know, reasonable person who approaches you is another reason that I think people sometimes stay away. But I would argue that not only is that maybe a reason that we can get over, but also the more used to being a regular you are at different bars or coffee shops or restaurants, the less that kind of happens. You just become part of the community of the place and it's a different feeling. And I have always really appreciated that. Absolutely. I am a complete enthusiast when it comes to food in general. And so exploring restaurants is a hobby of mine. It's nothing to go out and dine alone. And your research showed that more people are taking themselves out and going for dinner on their own. What do you think is behind this upward trend? There's a couple reasons for it, I think. One is that, and I'm speaking now as a New Yorker, but it can be really hard to get a table (laughs) someplace. And as a person who loves food, wants to try new food or like enjoy a nice cocktail or just like see what people are up to in the restaurant industry, I really want to eat there. And sometimes the best way to do that is to go alone and eat at a bar. But I think also, I'm sure there's some aspect of general loneliness, which we do know is a bit of an epidemic. But I also think, you know, there's a camaraderie that comes from being alone in a dining area and just sort of enjoying the hubbub and the quiet and the peace of it. And if you're really intentional about it, eating alone can be a way to disconnect yourself from whatever it was that was in your day. And it's an experience that you're having and a really pleasurable one. So all of those things may be factors. Of course, these things are vibes based and nobody quite knows why they happen, but I don't think there's anything wrong with it, certainly. And I think that maybe it's just true that as younger people kind of age into having enough money to dine out, that we're starting to break down those stigmas and barriers. I agree. I also think about things like how we experience the word alone, right? We need to take the villainy Mm -hmm. out of solitude, take the villainy out of being singular. There's a true opportunity to build relationships you otherwise may have not engaged. How has taking yourself out to dinner impacted your understanding of community and connection? That's such a great question. I mean, I'm not a naturally gregarious person with strangers, I would say. And that's just always been intimidating to me. And for me, being able to get used to sitting at a bar and finding And when I say at a bar, I mean like the bar in a restaurant where I'm having a meal and kind of sitting there. Feeling comfortable with talking to someone has been really important in my kind of development as a as a human being (laughs) in my maturity, certainly in my kind of late 20s and 30s. I think a thing that I've recognized and learned is that everyone is really interesting. Like everyone has a story. Everyone has like stuff they're interested in. And there's always some common ground that you could start a conversation with someone on, even if it's just the weather. But that's really fun to me. Like that's been a really low stakes thing for me. And I, I found myself writing about this during, um, not that the pandemic is over, but in the point where we got out of the real acute phase, there was a day that I I had tickets to a matinee of a play and I had gone into um, Manhattan and I'd sat down at a bar to eat some food. And I had this conversation with someone about nothing. I mean, it was just, it was just pleasantries, but it, it brought to mind some research that says that people who have kind of happy social lives, that's partly dependent on their having weak ties and a set of weak ties, which is to say people who they're acquainted with, they're not like close friends, but it's, you know, it's the barista or the bartender that you see every day. And it's the person who is often at the bar at 4 p.m. on a Thursday, which is when you usually go 
And having those kind of weak ties is actually a really great boost for mental health. So there's this happy medium kind of third place or whatever that happens in restaurants and at bars that I think can be really good for us and help remind us why community is important, even when it's at different levels of intimacy. And the intimacy factor is the huge sell typically in these spaces. And I'm now in realization that might be part of the apprehension is it is seen as such an intimate space. But do we ever consider how we could turn that intimacy inward and celebrate ourselves and make the sense of loneliness less apparent by making ourselves available to the community around us? And in that intimacy, I'm sure there's details that matter. And so for a night out with Alyssa, when Alyssa is going to put on her best and walk out the door and get a meal, what does an ideal night of enjoying a meal look like for you? How do you how do you take yourself out for dinner? I'm usually looking for food that I wouldn't normally make for myself at home, which often is like fancy seafood or something like that, or a cuisine that I'm not you know, isn't like really in my cooking repertoire, which often is like Japanese or something like that. And I'm looking for a place with ambiance. So the vibe of the place really matters to me. I want to go in feeling a little harried and leave feeling a little refreshed. I also want a bar to sit at. I love sitting at a bar. It's just really pleasant to me. It's like a really nice way to be around other people without having to feel like I'm taking up a table. And then, of course, the menu matters, but it's really not the most important thing. I just want to feel like I'm having an experience. This place seems friendly. It's bustling, but it's not packed. It's cute. It's beautiful, but it's not like sceney or I don't feel like I'm not cool enough to be there. Just a place that feels like home. And that is wonderful to find. And when I find those places, I tend to go back to them over and over again. So going out to dinner with your partner is cool. That's your thing, right? But um, yes, I have taken it to a level where now birthdays and special occasions, even Valentine's Day is not off the table for me. I am going to enjoy a solo dinner. And so my question for you is, how have you put the party in Party of One? <laughs> what a great question. Um, well, I definitely... Well, splurge is the word. I don't know. I feel like there is like moral things attached to that. But it's the feeling that I'm treating myself, (laughs) you know, at the end of the day, that I'm doing something kind for myself, that if I, you know, wanted to send someone I loved something wonderful, how could I redirect that same energy toward myself? And it's like, I'm going to get the appetizer and I'm going to get the meal And I'm probably going to get like a weird side and I might not even finish it. And I might get a dessert and a coffee or like a grappa at the end of the meal or something like that. And just sort of sit and watch. You know, a book is a handy implement to have when you're waiting for your food to show up. But once it shows up, it goes away. Like I want to sit. I want to taste the food. I want to think about it. I want to know kind of what is it that I'm having and how to how was it made and really enjoy that treating of myself. There are ways to make it a little special for yourself, even if it's just having a little coffee at the end of the meal. I agree. I, I'm a personal fan of showing up in a tiara and sash, maybe a tool skirt. <laughs> <laughs> it just well, I haven't done that in a while, but now you're making me think. Listen, <laughs> celebrate yourself. And all in the spirit of just the joy of your own company. One of your goals for 2023 was to perfect the art of solo dining. How do you think you did? Uh, I mean, can you perfect it? I think is what I realized. There's so many ways to do it and so many venues in which to do it. But I think I've gotten a little more adventurous about it, even if it's just being willing to spend a long time somewhere, right? Sometimes you feel like, oh, I'm taking up this seat, but actually kind of languidly eating your food (laughs) and drinking is nice. It's a pleasant thing. And I also probably once or twice did catch myself having those thoughts of like, oh, are they judging me? I was traveling alone in France for a bunch this summer and I was like, are they looking at And then I was like, who cares? (laughs) They're French. They're probably thinking I'm holding my wine glass wrong or something. My aloneness is the least of worries right now. And I um, I guess I really appreciate that. And it does mean I've had a lot of fun, weird things that I wouldn't have had otherwise. 
Alyssa. This has been an awesome journey exploring another person's experience of dining out because we all do this in our own little silo. So to make this <laughs> a wonderful conversation is, has been magical. So thank you so much for sharing this. I hope it's encouraging to folks who want to explore more of their town or more of their state and see what's out there for them. You've been amazing. And I look forward thank to it. Thank you so much. We should do lunch sometime, I'm just saying. <laughs> let's eat alone out. together. Yeah, let's eat alone together. It's always nice to make friends with other silo diners. Thank you so much. It's been great. That was New York Times writer Alyssa Wilkinson talking with producer Catrice Claudio. We'll link to Alyssa's article, The Glories of Dining Out Alone, on our show page, ctpublic.org seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. It's time for a short break. When we get back, Catrice talks with a friend who's observed thousands of solo diners as a bartender and a world-traveling solo diner herself. Bring a book, relax. Nobody is concerned, nobody's judging, nobody's worried about you aside from the service staff that's trying to make sure that you have the best possible experience. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Seasoned, everyone. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. This hour, we're talking about dining alone. This episode was the brainchild of producer Catrice Claudio. Catrice is going to jump in here and talk about what dining alone means to her, and then she'll bring Anna Konya into the conversation. Anna writes for NewHavensDailyNutmeg.com, and she's been a bartender for a decade. Here's Catrice. As we were thinking about this show on season, it was important for me to discuss the opportunity, the great opportunity that comes with dining alone. Personally, I think it's a missed opportunity that people try to pass up on due to insecurity or fear of outside perception. I've learned that dining alone is high-key a meditative practice. It's something that has helped me sit down and gather my thoughts and connect myself better, navigate my preferences and educate myself on how to show up in a dining room, It is my way to escape the labor of feeding others. I am the home cook of my house. And there is a thing where people are intimidated to feed me. And so the only way to get the care that I give is to go to people who are confident enough to cook without the intimidation. And the third thing that I do is I loved, I grew to love the potential of connecting with others. You would think that Dining alone is something where everybody understands the cues. They see you by yourself and they're just going to either think you're lonely or don't want to be bothered. And the truth is, I think I may be just one of those people that looks super friendly when they're by themselves because I always leave with a friend or a story or a connection that I otherwise wouldn't have had. And dining alone has actually been a contributing factor to my social growth as a professional in the food space. and. I have brought in a friend to talk with me about dining alone. And the reason why I'm inviting them is because they have an immense amount of experience as a bartender and have spent about 10 years observing either solo diners or being the de facto companion in the solo dining experience. So I like to welcome my friend, my homie, my girl, Anna Konya. <laughs> 
Thanks for having me on the show, Catrice. It's great to be here. I'm so happy to have you. And so what has been your experiences with solo diners as a bar professional in this game? Every guest that walks in that sits at the bar by themselves is a body language read. So anytime somebody has come up and offered you company, it's because you look open to receive that company. So the body language read usually is shoulders back, kind of head looking up, being observant versus somebody who may be face downwards, their countenance is turned downwards towards the bar. Perhaps you have a book in your hands. That's kind of the the indicators as to whether I'm really going to engage with a guest or not engage with a guest too much, depending on how much time I have, of course. But everybody sits at the bar wanting some form of social interaction. The bartender is the lowest form of social commitment. So we have this this guarantee that you will have at least a little bit of conversation. Um, Anybody who sits at a table truly doesn't want to interact with anyone. But if you're sitting at a bar, you're looking for at least a little conversation. And then it becomes a spectrum or a set of degrees as to how much interaction they get from me or the people around them, as you well well know. (laughs) (laughs) So has anything changed in solo dining behaviors that you've observed? I know that there's been talk about an increase in the loneliness epidemic, and I think COVID kind of made people used to existing in silos. And so have you noticed that the behavior in solo dining has changed at all? I wouldn't say necessarily in the past couple of years per se, but I would say that it's very regional. So mm-hmm. having spent a lot of time in New Orleans, there's almost no such thing as a solo diner in New Orleans. <laughs> if you sit down at any bar, you're going to make friends. <laughs> I have lifelong friends that I've had for 10, 12 years at this point that come from wandering into a random bar or restaurant, sitting down and having a meal. Whereas in the Northeast, I think that there's more of an isolationist attitude that we kind of have where you have your people and that's all you need. As I've bartended down south and kind of around the country, I don't usually have to worry about people quite as much down there as I do up here. So if I find that I have a couple solo diners and I'm too busy to interact with them too much, I'll try to gently lead their conversation toward each other and mm. kind of create friends. And people are willing to be led, but they're less willing to make that jump themselves as staunch New Englanders as we are. And as a New England traveler, I can tell you that my experience has been just that. And when I first started doing the solo dining thing, it was like I was trying to dodge the embarrassment of coming across someone I knew. I didn't care if somebody saw me by myself. I cared if somebody I knew saw me. And so it was one of those things where I learned to date my state. I learned to date my city and go and explore what was outside of my hometown in my local area, right? So that's how I found myself in Litchfield and New Haven and finding the Hogan Cider. And it's one of those things where... One thing about Connecticut specifically is we love to say there's nothing to do. I'm pretty sure you've mm-hmm, heard this. Mm-hmm. And what I've learned is that's absolutely not the truth. We just don't leave 20 minutes outside of our house. And I think solo dining gives us the opportunity to further explore what's around. And it actually made me fall in love with my hometown. And it made me experience travel differently because now I'm not going to New York to that steakhouse. I'm going to Essex, to this really cool mom and pop shop that I otherwise would have known had I not gone on my own trying to avoid the people I know. (laughs) Well, and there's a really good point to that, that when you're dining with companions, it becomes a rule by committee. So where are you going to go? And oftentimes when you have people who have different allergies or preferences, you always default to what you know is safe, what you know is going to be a good meal. But when you're by yourself, you can kind of let go of all of those constraints and really wander. Honestly. And that whole practice, like you had mentioned about just the intimacy that plays out Mm -hmm. in being in a restaurant space. How have you watched it played out with solo diners? Is it always like if they're looking for intimacy, they are going to the de facto companion? Or have you observed that people really do enjoy their company and they don't need you around? (laughs) I think it really, it depends on the person and how comfortable they are with themselves and really with their life experiences. So I've definitely had some diners that needed companionship and especially the ones that would come to the restaurant more often would find the most convenient seat to be close to me. So right in front of my service well, so where I'd be making all of my cocktails and they would sit right in front of there and that's an easy place to talk to me because I'm always there. But I've definitely had some diners that There was one woman in particular, and I just loved her energy. She 
never brought a book. She never brought a laptop. She never brought anything with her. But she also wasn't really interested in having conversation. She would just sit there and relax through the meal and just luxuriate over every single course. She wasn't even a drinker. She would have a mocktail maybe. But when I finally got to have some conversation with her, her life experience had put her in a place where she wasn't interested in sharing her time with other people. She just wanted to give it to herself. And she was very strong, very... uh, very interesting woman. So it definitely runs the spectrum, I would say. And so with you always being, again, available, people positioning themselves in proximity to you for that promise of connection, is there anything that any boundaries that solo diners might need to remember, you know, when they're alone versus when they're with someone else? I mean, there are definitely sets of boundaries that bartenders set in terms of how personal the conversation really gets. I've had bar guests tell me things that they've never told anyone in their lives. I like to call it bartender-patron confidentiality. There's definitely an element (laughs) of that. And for some people, we're the only people that they really have to talk to and have to make deep conversation with. And I found that the best bartenders, when they develop a strong sense of self and especially professional self, that those boundaries are pretty self-evident. And most people are incredibly respectful of them. I'm curious now because you have spent a lot of time on the service side of the bar, and I'm pretty sure in this occupation there's very few opportunities to dine on your own. What have your experiences with solo dining been? I've traveled pretty extensively by myself. I'd say probably 80% of the time I'm getting on a plane, I'm doing it without any companions. So most of my meals are taken alone. So, I mean, New Orleans is a city that when I used to work six days a week, seven days a week. I would take maybe two or three days off a month and I would shoot down to New Orleans by myself and just wander the city and walk for miles and miles and obviously make friends as we've discussed. But I've uh, sat in bars all over the world. And most of the time, if I'm in a place where I'm not speaking the language, I'm often just an observer. And it's a really unique experience. I was in Cuba for a week or so back in 2017. And I just walked all over Havana and sat in different restaurants and bars and drank more cortados than any <laughs> human being should ever ingest in one day. And uh, and restaurants are a wonderful cultural waypoint. So being able to see how Cubans interact and how they interact with space and each other and it's experiential everywhere I go. And I always have a notebook. I always write down my observations and I always try to soak it all in so that I can uh, adjust my perspective as I go from there. I mean, it's always different with tourists. It feels like people in service think more about the solo diner's experience. And I think sometimes even the diner themselves does. And I think that adds to the experience a little bit. I know being with amazing people who were part of my experience, I developed a sense of confidence because there was just this understanding that, no, they're not seeing me as pathetic and they just want to make sure that I'm getting what I need. And I'm pretty sure they have other things to do besides worry about me, right? So it made me feel more comfortable in the skin and taking up space, which I think is something that women often don't think about doing either. And Hearing you talk about your travel is just absolutely fascinating. I want to know if there's anything that may have informed your sense of confidence when it came to dining on your own. Gosh, I don't know. I've always been an introvert and I've always been a loner. So for me, dining alone has always been the most natural of spaces to exist in. I started bartending because I was so shy that I didn't know how to talk to people. So (laughs) (laughs) I figured if I got behind a bar, I would learn the art of conversation and it definitely helped. But yeah, I guess it's always been me. It's always been me with a book at a table. My jaw dropped. So the reason why <laughs> I dropped is because you said you were an introvert and you're a loner. And in my purview, I felt like when I would talk about this subject with people, just trying to get a feel for what other people's experiences were, the common thing was, I'm an introvert. I would never. And it seemed like they were positioning it as an extrovert sport. And so I am in love with this idea that there is a lot of comfort in you enjoying your solitude and the guarantee that you can enjoy your solitude in a restaurant space or at a bar even if there is somebody serving you. But also as an introvert, it's also helped you build relationships and foster connection. And so what ways do you think solo dining encourages that? I mean, solo dining, especially at a bar, solo dining is the invitation to make new friends, as you know. And having sat at a bar with you before, I've made new friends through you. <laughs> there's something about your smile and your openness that just attracts people. It's wonderful. But Cast me some more. <laughs> <laughs> but 
when you sit down at a bar you're sitting in community with the other people at the bar, even if you're not necessarily interacting. So, you know, oftentimes if I don't have time to interact with a guest too much, I'll try to lead their conversation together or I'll turn around and I'll find that people have just connected on their own. Or if I'm working on a new cocktail, I'll pour samples and let people try it and let them find community in the shared experience of having a drink together. But I mean, I've had bar guests that, especially in New Haven where there's such a transient population of students and doctors and nurses that have come through not knowing anyone and sat down at the bar and by the end of it have started making friends and started finding community. And to watch that progression over a course of months of people who show up on the first day, they've just moved into their apartment, they don't have pots, pans, groceries, so they come out for a meal. And then six months later, they're friends with the other bar regulars, they're friends with the servers, they're running amok, they're going to all the late night spots, and they've found their crew. It all starts at the community of the bar. I absolutely am thankful that I have somebody in my life that gets the value of solo dining like I do, that has experienced solo diners. Is there anything that you would like to say to encourage folks when it comes to like dipping a toe in the solo dining pool? Yes, definitely. When you're sitting at a restaurant, let's say with friends, how often do you look at the other tables? Really? How often are you outside of the scope of your table? Because ideally, in every restaurant, the goal of service staff is to create, um, I call it the bubble, but it's the perfect experience where nothing exists outside of your table and your community. Mm. So knowing that Why worry about anybody looking at you or thinking about you when you're sitting at a table by yourself? It really is just you and yourself, which can be scary. Just that intimacy with just yourself can be scary. But bring a book, relax. Nobody is concerned. Nobody is judging. Nobody is worried about you aside from the service staff that's trying to make sure that you have the best possible experience. And know you're worth it. Know you're worth the bill. Know that you're worth the experience and go out and explore some things that you probably otherwise wouldn't. That was Catrice Claudio and her friend, Anna Konya. She's a writer, bartender, and cultural commentator. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. After the break, a conversation about literally the art of dining alone. You'll meet a photographer who focused her first book around people dining alone in public. One of the magical things about restaurants is that you can be in your private space, but you also have the option by people watching to sort of connect with other people. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. We're calling this episode The Art of Dining Alone. For our next guest, that art is literal. Nancy Sherl is a fine art photographer based in New York. Her book is Dining Alone in the Company of Solitude. It was published by Daylight Books in 2022. Nancy, thanks for talking with me about Dining Alone, both your book and the practice. I'm really happy to be with you. Well, thank you so very much for having me. So tell us about your project. Dining Alone in the Company of Solitude was a long-term project spanning over three and a half decades, and it culminated during the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's a photographic portrait series where I actually decided to make pictures of lone diners as my subjects set against different restaurant interiors as as my backdrops. And the idea was that it was a metaphor for really exploring the complexities of solitude and more specifically when one is alone in public. What inspired you to spend more than three decades documenting the experience of dining alone? After I graduated from college and returned from the University of Wisconsin in Madison to New York City, I lived alone in Greenwich Village I was surrounded by some of the most wonderful cafes and coffee shops. 
and I would walk around the West Village and peek into some of the higher end restaurants and the more ethnic restaurants. I was just attracted to them and intrigued by them. And in addition to that, though I loved to cook and I loved being with my friends, I didn't always want to cook and I didn't always have friends available. And when I would take myself out to a cafe to have some food or a nice cup of coffee, it just felt like it was a very social place and it felt like it was a sanctuary for me because I was around people. One of the magical things about restaurants is that you can be in your private space, but you also have the option by people watching to sort of connect with other people. The subjects in your photographs aren't random people that you happen to capture in a moment. So how did you direct the images that you took? The only real directive that I gave to my subjects was to please ignore my lights and to please ignore me with my camera and just um, really get into their own space and sort of act out how they would if they were dining alone. Mm. Aside from the personal solitude depicted, it's a fascinating visual history of restaurants. Some look iconic. They're like old-timey diner counters and swivel stools. And there are also like sleek sushi counters. And then in the second half of the book, there are photographs of the creative ways that we dined out in the midst of a global pandemic. So what stood out to you most about the ways restaurants have changed over the 35 years while you were photographing them? The first part of my project, it was, of course, pre-pandemic. So I saw this concept as being timeless and universal. There are subtle hints that um, allude to the sense of time. Those might be reflected by fashion or by the interior design slash decor of the restaurant itself. You saw, you know, prior to 1988, I certainly saw a lot of smokers sitting at the counter or in their respective private spaces in a restaurant and just enjoying a cigarette. Whereas after 1988, that was certainly in the interiors, that was just not part of the scene. And well, certainly the past few decades, you know, you saw a lot. I witnessed a lot of uh, lone diners sitting in restaurants with, you know, their iPads and their iPhones to a large extent, but iPads became extremely popular. One of the themes that kept coming up throughout our research on dining alone is that when you eat in a restaurant, you're never really alone. Can you talk about how you illustrated that idea in some of your photos? I feel that it's very important to be cognizant of the fact that solitude is part of a spectrum. My experience might be at one end of the spectrum that I felt a certain sense of comfort, sanctuary, just being around other people, so joy and solace. But I know that, you know, there are people who dine alone and they feel very sad and very lonely. So I tried to do, tried to illustrate both, but it's a very subtle, very subtle nuances helped me to do that. Most of my subjects are looking upward and outward, or they're fully engaged in what they're doing. But you know, much of this is subjective, and I feel that the viewer, whether they're a viewer observing other patrons in a restaurant or they're the viewer of photographs, these photographs, I feel that they will often project what they're feeling and what their personal experiences are, and that will color how they interpret the lone diner that they are looking at. Yeah, it's so interesting because, like you said, Solitude and in dining alone, it is kind of on a spectrum of people who do it with a sense of joy and people who are dining alone with a sense of vulnerability about it or self-consciousness. It's really interesting. Yeah, and I, and I want to add to that, uh, Robin, because I feel that though I'm not an expert on the topic, certainly I have my own experiences and I've heard many stories and I photographed many people and talked to them about their experiences. So I will say that that spectrum that you just mentioned, most of us sort of tap into one end or the other end at various points and times in our lives. 
I'm not by any means trying to sugarcoat the notion of solitude. Some people really do have a hard time with it. And the the physical aspect of dining alone during the pandemic really sort of accentuated this notion of really being isolated. I know I felt it, but I think that it was it was really across the world. I know that your mother is a huge inspiration for your work in this book. So I wondered if you would talk about that. And also, I wonder what your own relationship with dining alone is. Yes, my mother was a an enormous inspiration for me. And the very personal story about that is that when I was a senior in high school, my dad passed away prematurely. And I went off to college. I was very concerned about my family, but really my mom, because she was outwardly such a rock of Gibraltar. And yet I just worried what life would become for her. My mom was always forward thinking, moving forward and creative thinking. And she did all sorts of wonderful things. She carried on with her uh, hosting her wonderful Thanksgiving dinners. She forged new friendships. She went back to complete her MA in education. She felt very comfortable in her own skin. Above all else, what really impressed me was that when she couldn't get someone to join her for a museum visit or to see a film, she really had no problem going on her own. Yeah, you can enjoy your own company. (laughs) Exactly. That's what really sparked the project. And so for me, it really was an extension of my home to dine alone in a restaurant. There's a certain comfort that I had to be out in public, surrounded by others. That was just very comforting for me. And so this was a wonderful and very enjoyable outlet for me. Is it still? Yes. I'm always in favor of being with people. And I'm very fortunate to have a wonderful partner and a wonderful dog and wonderful family and friends in this city. And so that's always my preference. But I find that slipping into a outdoor or indoor restaurant at this point, having a light bite or cup of coffee is still very, um, very much a sense of solitude for me. And it's like my private time. Are there any favorite or particularly memorable photos in the book for you where you thought that it just perfectly illustrated the spirit of dining alone? Yes, I think that offhand, one of them is a picture of two custodians. They're each wearing a light blue shirt with their name embroidered on the pockets, seated at a local diner, separated. They're at separate booths that are adjoined. And each booth running down the center of tables is a low wall of artificial flowers. But I really like the image because It's so layered in meaning, and it's so open to interpretation. One of the suggestions is that here you have two people that are presumably working in the same place, whether it's at that diner or somewhere else, because they're wearing the same uniform. And they're breaking together at the same time, and yet they're separated. They're in their own worlds and their own spaces. And the wall of artificial flowers is low enough that if they wanted to, you know, it's about that possibility. It's always there in a restaurant. If they wanted to, they could peek their heads above the flowers and start up a conversation. Yeah, that photo stuck out to me too, because like you mentioned, they are dressed similarly. And the gentlemen look almost, you know, at first glance, they look almost like they might be brothers. Um, (laughs) But you look closer and you're like, oh, no, no, they really are having this separate experience, but they sort of look like they're together, but they're not. Yeah. And by the way, that diner that we just talked about is the Market Diner on the west side of New York. It's still open. The next picture that comes to mind is an Italian restaurant called Bondini's, which is actually, it closed years ago. And it's basically of three people. One is a couple and the other one is a single woman. Um, seated more in the foreground. 
And I'm really just trying to compare and contrast the two. So it is very open for interpretation. The couple in the back are lucky to have each other and they may, in the moment that I captured, be just talking about something. But it could be interpreted that actually in that moment, the woman is very much alone. She's struggling with communicating something to Mm -hmm. her husband. And in the foreground, you have a single woman who just appears to be very comfortable in her own skin, enjoying a glass of wine, was independent and confident enough to take herself out to a white tablecloth restaurant and and to enjoy the evening. They both are very strong in, in their messaging to me. Nancy, thank you so much for talking with me about your work. I really appreciate it. Well, it was a pleasure to be here, and I thank you so much, and Happy New Year. (laughs) To you, too. I hope you have lots of opportunities to dine alone or with friends. Thank you so much. That was photographer Nancy Sherl. You'll find a link to Dining Alone on our show page, along with images from the book as well. Go to ctpublic.org slash seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Seasoned is produced by me and Meg Dalton, Catrice Claudio, Stephanie Stender, Tegan Engel, Meg Fitzgerald, Sabrina Herrera. To keep up with the latest on Seasoned, follow at CT Public on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And we're at WNPR on X. Catch this and past episodes of Seasoned covering everything from your favorite ice cream shops to essential ingredients like olive oil wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you like the show, give it all the stars. You know how it works. It helps other food lovers find us. And stay connected with us by subscribing to the Full Plate newsletter. Every month, I feature recent episodes, recipes from cookbooks I love, and gardening tips from Charlie and Ardozzi, that sweetheart. Go to ctpublic.org slash newsletters to sign up. You can see lots more recipes and ask a cooking question on our food site, ctpublic.org slash food. And you can always send the show an email at seasoned at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time.